Welcome to Beyond Trauma, a guide for your healing journey. This podcast is a project of Beyond Healing Media, where we value each person's humanity and what life experiences shaped you to be who you are. We, as the hosts of this podcast, seek to embody these ideas as we explore things like trauma, its impact on the body and mind, and even how it has shaped the way that we are in relationships. Trauma is not the end of our journey. So within this podcast, we will also discuss what it's like to heal, move forward, and grow as a human who has experienced pain. This episode is a special episode because I have a group of women here that we're going to interview and it will actually be posted to both notice that and beyond trauma. So if you're listeners to both, you're going to hear it on both podcasts because this particular topic we feel like is relevant to both clinicians and therapists and also clients and people that are in the process of their own healing journey. So we wanted to share it with everybody that uh, is a listener. So without further ado, I would love to introduce you to the safety team. So you guys, I'll invite you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit first about what the safety team is and what you guys do and uh, who you are as individuals. All right. Thank you, Melissa, for inviting us to be on this podcast. We're pretty excited. So what is the safety team? We are a group of diverse professionals, all of whom have expertise in the areas of violence against people and all with extensive martial arts backgrounds. It's hard to simply say what we do, and it's not an easy summary in three sentences, but I'll, I'll give you I'll give it a try. We teach sexual assault prevention and promote healing from trauma through a blend of education, psychoeducation and empowerment self-defense techniques. We do all of this by creating a safe place that allows for mindful moving and connecting with others. Our mission uh, is this, together we prevent violence, heal trauma, foster resilience, and build safe communities. Sometimes we like to say we're trying to change the world, but that seems a little ambitious. That's beautiful, and I have the same ambition, so you're in good company. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely. All right. And can you guys share about yourselves as individuals as well? Well, I might as well start because I've already started. My name is Dr. Christine de Blasio, and I'm a psychologist who's worked in the field of violence prevention and trauma recovery for over 30 years. And during this time, I've had the honor of assisting thousands of clients along their healing journey. I'm also the director of a large outpatient mental health practice here in Vermont. And as part of this work, I've had the privilege of mentoring many newer mental health clinicians as they develop their skills. On the side, I've trained in the martial arts for over 18 years. And I started because my young daughters were training and I continued long after they stopped. And subsequently I've earned the rank of fourth degree black belt in Kempo Jitsu Karate. And it is these martial arts skills paired with my psychology background that I bring to the programs that we'll be talking about today. Along with six other amazing women, two of whom are on this podcast, I co-founded The Safety Team, a nonprofit organization that began with this simple mission to help prevent violence. And it has evolved to much more than we could have imagined way back 18 years ago. (laughs) What What I know is that this work reinforces what I have personally experienced And that is that moving one's body in mindful ways can have a tremendous impact on well-being and healing. Thank you. Sure. 
I am Christina Allard. I'm a physical therapist. I've been working for about 25 years in all across the lifespan, homes, clinics, hospitals, schools, and residential nursing facilities. Um, I have particular training in pediatrics, rehabilitation equipment, interdisciplinary teaming, and then trauma. Um, most recently, I work with school-aged children and young adults. Um, many of the clients that I work with have either experienced trauma themselves or witnessed traumas in their home. Um, so that's what brings me sort of into this team because I experience so much of that in my work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have also explored a lot of martial arts styles and I started seriously training in Kempo Jujitsu um, at the same dojo with Christine and Nancy um, with my daughter also. Um, she has gone on and I have stayed. And um, I find my work with the safety team to be kind of a blend of my professional and my personal experience in martial arts. And I have just experienced enormous benefit from having moving my body in such mindful and powerful ways. I just have to say, Christina just earned her third degree (laughs) brown belt in Kempo Jitsu Karate like a week ago. Congratulations. So point Thank out you. that accomplishment. Thank you. Very cool. <laughs> okay. And uh, thank you, Melissa, for asking the safety team to join this podcast. Um, I am also a member of the safety team. My name is Nancy Keller, and I'm currently a middle-level educator and have worked for over 30 years in a variety of capacities in secondary education as well as post-secondary education. Um, About 20 years ago, I had the opportunity to create a general education alternative program for middle school students. Um, This program was designed for students who thrived in a setting of a lower student-to-teacher ratio, had fewer transitions, as well as um, an increase in physical activity through the martial arts. Um, Today, when I look back on that founding program, I would call this a trauma-informed classroom, Uh, but I didn't know it at the time. Um, It was in this setting that I discovered how the mind-body connection could help my students um, become more uh, able and ready to learn. Um, And this led to my own reading and research on the relationship between physical activity, emotion regulation, and achievement in school. Um, At the same time, I was also starting my own martial arts practice. And um, I was also at the same time connecting with other women martial artists who had jobs in the helping professions. And at this time, I was um, helping found, or yeah, the, the safety team. Um, And today I am still teaching middle school and enjoying every minute. Um, I have a fourth degree black belt in Kempo Jiu-Jitsu as well as advanced rank in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And I'm a doctoral student at UVM, um, our local university in Vermont, um, studying the relationship between therapeutic empowerment, self-defense, and post-traumatic growth. So a pretty diverse background and all related. (laughs) Oh, oh, I entirely agree. Oh, how fun you guys. So, I mean, a couple of things that I just want to highlight is number one, the diversity of experience, um, and yet the tremendous overlap, uh, in, in your guys' stories. 
um, and the, the personal experience that you have each had with martial arts, um, I, I'm assuming that it really gives you a in-depth understanding of how transformative um, embodied practice really is. Um, and anybody that knows me or is around me for at least five minutes figures out real fast that I'm obsessed with all things having to do with somatic therapies. Um, I'm also a doctoral student and uh, that's where my study is, is in uh, raising interoceptive awareness um, in as many ways as we can find. And the, the impact of the potent combination between interoceptive, just meaning internal uh, inside my body awareness mixed with a non-judgmental stance towards ourselves. Um, and the power of that. And so I, I guarantee that there's going to be overlap in there. So I might get excited at some point and need to interject something. <laughs> um, so I guess to, to begin, um, now that you guys have shared a little bit about what the safety team is all about, and you guys individually, um, I'm, I'm wanting to really hear you guys talk about how did this idea of martial arts um, come about in terms of how it can help trauma survivors and what have you guys um, observed over, over the years at this point of working both with your own bodies, but then also with lots of others about what this kind of practice does in a healing journey for people? Okay. Well, thank you, Melissa. Um, you framed that really well. Um, so if we look at it as a journey uh, with the safety team, we started with our community-based empowerment self-defense workshops. And um, empowerment self-defense is a specific kind of approach to self-defense that I think warrants a little bit of discussion or highlighting. Um, the research shows that empowerment self-defense is evidence-based. It has uh, comprehensive mental and physical techniques um, specifically adapted for women that offer them a full range of tools to confront a variety of different threats. Um, it explicitly holds perpetrators responsible. So really important, central to healing as well, uh, to shift the blame from uh, the survivor to the perpetrator. Uh, in addition to that, uh, the safety team teaches um, and empowerment self-defense teaches violence in a social context so that women can place their experiences and understand it a little better given mm -hmm. the social political setting. And all of this is designed to empower women. And that's what empowerment self-defense is. And that is, in a nutshell, what we teach in our community-based classes. And that's how it first started. Um, our our community-based classes um, is trauma-informed um, in that all of the instructors have backgrounds and understandings of trauma and trauma recovery. And the design of our, our instruction is also trauma-informed. We know that the cornerstone to establishing safety for other people is, um, is around our relationships. Mm. So um, instantly and through every communication, we always highlight um, relationship with our participants. And uh, the design of our classes um, is a one to five instructor mm -hmm to student ratio. And we oftentimes are working in small groups and coming together for large group discussions. So we really feel that that facilitates um, um, a trauma-informed setting. In addition to that, um, our community-based classes um, really uh, 
I would have to say we work very hard at it being predictable. So that increases safety for the women. Um, we have a set agenda. We talk to um, and email our participants ahead of time so that we can be aware of any potential trauma histories so that we can also um, help women in um, if they become triggered, help them with grounding techniques. Um, we are also skilled in co-regulating with our participants yeah. because we know that even in a community-based setting that isn't necessarily therapeutic focus, we know that given this, the statistics on violence against women, that probably half of the class have experienced some sort of sexual trauma in their mm -hmm. lifetime. Um, and as I said before, one of the big things that we do is we shift the blame from the survivor to the perpetrator. And we do that through some psychoeducation in our community-based classes so that women understand that um, the freeze response in particular, that it was a response they had no control over. Yeah. And um, it really had their best interest at heart. But so many women who have had experiences and experienced the freeze response feel that um, it's that their body failed them and they feel shamed by that. So, so go ahead. I, I would love to nuance that a little bit because yes. I think particularly for clients that are listening, um, and I, I do want to say that as I describe this, this will um, not be highly detailed, but enough that it might be a little activating to anybody that has this in, in their history. So I want to say that before I speak. Um, but the, the nuance to what you're describing with the freeze response comes from a awareness that for a lot of us that, that work with this population that have sexual assault in their history, um, blame is not just from people around us. There's an internal self-blame that is often generated by the freeze response that happened in the midst of the encounter. And there, from that, there's questions about why didn't I fight more? Why didn't I scream? Why didn't I do something other than what I did? Because when the, the freeze response happens, it's a very much a paralytic response. And without that psychoeducation that you're talking about, there's a misunderstanding of why did my body do what it did? And there's the illusion of choice this idea that I must have chosen to not respond. And then what does that mean? Does that mean that I was okay with what happened? Does it mean that, well, my perpetrator uh, misconstrued consent and thought that it was okay when it was not okay? There's all kinds of layers to that. So that, that blame shifting is not just about pushing away judgments from other people around us. It's about shifting my internal story around why did I do what I did? Why did I not do what I wish I had done, et cetera, that uh, is so essential when we begin healing to realize that my freeze response was there to keep me alive. That for whatever reason in that moment, my body determined that my best chance for survival was to be immobilized. And uh, that is a, uh, a blessing and a curse of the way that our nervous system is wired. Um, but I think shifting that and, and changing our understanding opens up the possibility of being grateful for our response, but then also moving forward to find new ways that maybe if I ever encounter a similar situation, my body will believe that it has the potential to exit that situation in a different way, which I think is exactly where your guys's work is uniquely positioned. And that's exactly a wonderful segue into, um, you know, the, the content of the empowerment self-defense program is this, um, 
the, 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 the um, grounding of the skills in the body and their voice um, mm. has women experienced their body as powerful yeah. as opposed to the, perhaps an experience that they had that wasn't as powerful. Um, and this was all within our community-based classes. I mean, we covered topics of, um, we still cover topic, topics of affirmative consent mm. and boundary setting and practice that as along with striking pads and using our voices. And what we realized is that uh, there are potential applications to more therapeutic setting for empowerment, self-defense. Right. So that led to the creation of our second program with the safety team, which we call therapeutic empowerment, self-defense, which is a small group adjunctive mental health treatment for women survivors of sexual trauma. And um, at this point, I would um, rather or like to turn this over with a discussion between Christina and Christine, um, the leaders of this particular program on the safety team. So but before you guys speak to that, um, could you, any of the three of you, just quickly define affirmative consent for anybody that's listening that doesn't know what that means? Because I, I feel like when I encountered this, I was probably in my early 20s. And there was several moments of like feeling my, my system try to recalibrate <laughs> um, some old learning. And uh, it, it was very impactful and, and changed um, my internal stories of several experiences that I had already had and certainly changed some, some experiences in the future for me. Um, so, so once again, for those of you with this in your history, just know that this will be uh, tender to listen to, but I think it's essential to, to understand what affirmative consent means. Um, and please jump in, Christine and Christina. Uh, so the, the short answer, affirmative consent is only yes means yes. Yeah. And uh, that's a shift from, and I'm interesting, you said it was like this shift for you, Melissa, because that's what it was for me too. Um, no means no means something so different from yes means yes. It means that I have to be able to say no. And what if I am immobilized due to panic and I cannot speak? Exactly. And the laws in our country are based on this idea of no means no, that, oh, she didn't say no, right. even though we might have or a survivor could have been immobilized at the time, as you mentioned. Um, uh, so um, yes means yes. And um, that yes is always continuous. So it could mean that um, whatever you're engaged in, um, you can all of a sudden decide it's not for you anymore. Right. And, and you have affirmative consent means that you can say no. So it's not continuous. And it's also enthusiastic. So we all know that we've been pressured to say yes to things that we don't want to um, and not very enthusiastic about it, but affirmative consent is about enthusiasm yes. and, and it's continuous. And so, it's freely given too, so that exactly. there's no power differential. You're, you're of your own free will deciding, yes, yes, I want to do this, not uh, maybe so, I'm not sure. And it's a pivotal shift from the no, only no means no, because what that means is that someone has a right to your body until or if you say no. And like you were saying, Melissa, if Broca's area, the speech area of the brain goes offline during a traumatic event, you can't say no. If the freeze response, that tonic immobility occurs during a traumatic event, you can't fight back. 
Both of those are things that the courts have used against victims for many, 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 many years. And only in certain states now has that changed. And not only have the courts used it against victims, our culture has used it against victims um, to to blame them for what I call a survival reflex. Your brain just did what your brain was trying to do in the service of your survival. That's all. And that's how I frame it to people in the therapeutic program, that that's sort of a brain reflex. That's a survival reflex. But unlike other reflexes, like no matter how much you train your knee, if somebody hits you, it's going up. Uh, Your leg's going up. It's just the way it goes. Um, However, with this reflex, it's not really a reflex. It's it's something that you can practice a response so that you have a different response in that situation. And that's what we do. So it's a, a select type of brain reflex that is amenable to, to education practice change. Um, well, and I, I think that um, that the, the deepening of that question really gets at why I believe um, self-defense, whether it be martial arts or, or another method, but a, a true physical embodied training of uh, how to protect ourselves is actually uh, not only curative on some level for past trauma, but it is preventative to future sexual mm-hmm. assault. Mm-hmm. And not because we end up actually fighting off an attacker. Right. Right. It it does something before then. And and this question of um, training our system to not go into a freeze response, um, that is how we prevent um, the the tonic immobility and the the freeze response from ever getting to that point. Because what happens neurologically is that if our system evaluates that I am not strong enough, trained enough, fast enough, equipped enough to do something other than freeze, it will freeze. But if I have embodied experience that tells me, oh, no, I do know how to get out of this situation, then I will not suffer from a freeze response. And so that that physical training actually uh, trains us neurologically to have a different fight, flight or freeze pattern in the face of trauma, which is just um, profound. (laughs) I, I couldn't agree more. And I would liken it, although this is entirely different, I would liken it to teaching a new driver. When you teach a new driver, everything is difficult and nothing is automatic. Nothing is automatic. Right. There's a lot of panic on at least someone's part, whether it's the driver or the person driving (laughs) with the driver. Or the people around them. (laughs) But over time, those... I mean, do you think about putting your seatbelt on? Do you think about applying the brake? Do you think about, I hope you think about putting your turn signal on. That's a pet peeve of mine. But you know what I mean, is that it becomes automatic. There's a new response that is trained and automatic in a situation that, that you know, you're doing all the time. And that's what I think we do here, is train a different response that becomes more your default, your go-to because you've trained it, you don't have to use the cognitive part of your brain because it's offline. You can use your motor memory. You can use the part of your brain that is online and right. then respond in a different way. You know, and just to search, you know, cycle back a little bit, I, I forget exactly what you were saying, Melissa, but so much of what we do isn't actually about the physical stuff. It's about how do you feel like, how can you carry yourself? Mm-hmm. What can you do to be aware? What can you do? And you shouldn't have to do this. No one should have to be aware and try to avoid this because 100% of 100% of all assaults lie on the shoulders of whoever is doing the attacking. And that's what actually needs to change in our society. But until it does, 
we work on strategies that don't require any physical skill whatsoever. Um, and so that's a big part of what we do. Our community workshops are about two and a half hours long. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first 45 minutes to an hour is us talking. Yeah. And then the remainder is the moving. That's at least in the first one. After that, we do a series. After the first one, it's much more active. But that first one, which I personally think is the most important, and I personally think that some of the vital parts are just how you how you move your body in a way that signals I'm in my body. And my body is powerful. And we talk about carrying yourself like a person with power because Mm -hmm. you are. And Mm -hmm. one of the, one of our participants said, walk like a boss. (laughs) Walk like a boss. Yes, I agree. The language that I use with clients a lot is walk through the world as if you're also a predator. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, when a predator meets another predator, it's a very different encounter. Um, and th- that was a gift given to me by uh, somebody that was very formative in my own healing after my own uh, stories of this nature. And it, it changed everything for me. But one, one piece that I'm really curious about to, to hear you guys speak to is a, a neuro component that uh, happens particularly for women, for all humans. But in this case, we're speaking about women that have a long history of um, trauma, the the body actually um, reduces the amount of uh, nerve stimulation to our muscles in response to certain kinds of trauma. So there is a literal muscular weakening and um, that's connected to high levels of dissociation, um, clumsiness. There's, there's all kinds of physical manifestations of this. But for a lot of women, there's a, an actual physical um, diminishment that occurs when we've had a lot of trauma or immediately after a really impactful trauma where we truly feel weak in our body because our body has reduced the amount of electrical stimulation to our muscles because it believes that stillness and smallness is still a good idea. Right. This this is deep in our survival strategies and evolutionary patterns of prey animals do best when they're still and small. And so our nervous system attempts to assist that strategy. Um, the problem is we're we're not a bunny rabbit, right? And and this comes with all kinds of other problems for us. And so in order to counteract that, there is a, a process of waking up our muscles of inviting our nervous system to again, allow strength to return to our limbs and to our core. And that can take a while for me. I found it through yoga Mm -hmm. and it was profound for me when I started to feel my muscles turning back on and to realize like, I'm a lot stronger than I thought I was like physically, not emotionally, but just the actual physical sensation of strength in your muscles um, and feeling what you're capable of doing is uh, startling at the beginning. So, so I'm curious how you guys encounter that. I would say that we encounter that with every single community class. Hmm. And I would say almost universally across participants, they will respond back to us like, oh, I didn't know I could do that. Or, oh, I'm surprised at how loud my voice can be or how strongly I can hit this pad. And it's more noticeable, I think, in, in the therapeutic classes um, particularly because those women are coming in already having a known trauma. Mm-hmm. And, and after the first class, after the first time they've hit something in such a safe environment, they, 
they're so surprised and they're so delighted and you can just <laughs> see their enthusiasm coming yeah. up and, and, and their, their personality, if you will, or their, their life force coming up. It's, it's incredible. And it's, it's inspiring to those of us who are working with them really and truly inspiring. What I've noticed is that it, everybody likes to hit things. They just don't know it. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> and so once they start, sometimes there's no stopping them and, and it's fun. You know, it, 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 they're in their body. They're, they're experiencing their body as powerful. Uh, they're using parts of their body in a way that they haven't used before. So this body that perhaps they've they've in some ways separated them some from or they've felt betrayed by, they yeah. now are able to see it in a whole new light. Like, wow, this thing is a pretty cool vessel and I can use it in ways that I never thought I could. And it feels good. Mm. It feels powerful. Oh, and just like that, that tiny little snippet alone, my body feels good for most trauma survivors. That is a, a revolution. Mm -hmm. It's just an astounding revolution to realize, holy crap, I can feel good in my body. Mm -hmm. uh, like it, it is still capable of this kind of empowered pleasure. Um, and, and touching into that sensation shifts something. And I, there is this sort of awakening that occurs that starts to kind of get some momentum of its own. That is just beautiful to watch. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say, in addition to that, is we see people reclaim their voice. Mm. You know, they've felt silenced. They haven't felt often. They haven't felt like they could share what happened because it wasn't safe to do so. So they've carried it with them for a long time. And as we talked about earlier, Broca's area goes offline when the trauma occurs. And it also goes offline when you're, you're remembering or having images of the trauma. So the voice is often sort of lost there. But we encourage and we support using your voice. So we, we will, while they're hitting things, um, as part of breathing, we will encourage them to find certain words and we practice them and we do it with them and they support one another and they find their voice. And I just had a participant recently tell me how she found her voice in setting boundaries, not in situations that we're talking about here, but just in other situations mm -hmm. where she felt like she couldn't set boundaries. And she was able to do that in, in, in a way she had never done before. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, that's, it's, it's the coolest thing to watch. It is transformational, I think for many people. And it's so short, you know, I've been a therapist for a long time and sometimes therapy goes on a long time yes. and wonderful things can happen. And this, I can see such profound changes and we do up to three individual sessions in the therapeutic and then three group sessions at six sessions tops and yeah. people are walking out and they tell us that they are different than when they walked in. It's not us. We see it, but they also tell us that. Mm -hmm. um, Even coming into the second group session, you they're walking in differently. They're, I mean, they look different. They they yeah. physically are holding their bodies differently. It's it's quite incredible. So we One haven't talked about the therapeutic program, and I don't know if you had a question, Melissa, but but I'll talk about the therapeutic program ah. if that's okay. So uh, Nancy talked about the community program, and we noticed in that program, which which is. Um, you know, it's structured and predictable in all the ways that Nancy mentioned. We can't fine tune it to what participants might need because it's a larger group, even though we do some small group work. But what we found and what the research found is that there was healing taking place. Mm -hmm. But what we also knew is that some survivors 
would never go to a class like that. Um, it would be too, too hard, too intimidating, too uncomfortable. And so we took that program, which we think I think of as prevention with a side of healing, and we mm-hmm. flipped it around, healing with a side of prevention. And we designed this therapeutic empowerment self-defense program, which Nancy could talk about the research or, or, or how this program fits in, in, in the world. But it's a it's a individual sessions and then very small group, all with people who identify as having had some sort of violent violence in their past, whenever mm-hmm. it has occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, usually multiple episodes of some sort of interpersonal violence, whether it be sexual assault or stalking or physical abuse and, and so forth. So it's it's attuned to their needs. It's done in a slightly different way. Um, it's done in a very safe environment. It's done in my office, which is an unconventional use of a therapy office, um, <laughs> but it seems to work so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's been just amazing to be a part of it. These, these and we're working with women, these women, uh, I am in awe of their resilience, their creativity, their, their courage. courage. Uh, and they hit pretty hard too. <laughs> uh-huh. There's a lot of rage to fuel. <laughs> but this program, Nancy, maybe you can talk about that. Um, how this program, what your research has shown in terms of this program, because it is a pretty innovative program, and you have done a thorough search of the literature. Mm. Maybe you want to just share that. Well, um, empowerment, self-defense itself like we've, um, is a, a research-based approach. And um, it, there's evidence that shows that it, it lowers the incidence of sexual assault for those people who have completed the program, as well as impact um, their self-efficacy or, and their self-confidence. Mm-hmm. That's uh, pretty well established. Mm-hmm. Um, what hasn't been researched is empowerment self-defense used in a therapeutic setting. Yeah. Um, yoga has had a tremendous amount of research, um, but this embodied treatment has not, but maybe a couple studies um, mm-hmm. to document the outcomes and the impact on the participants who've taken it. So we are really curious as a safety team, um, as we work with using empowerment self-defense as a therapeutic adjunct of treatment. Yeah. Um, to document our outcomes and and study it more and really imp- uh, appeal to others who study it as well. Yeah, yeah. So Nancy, am I, I'm assuming that you're working on that for your dissertation, is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And I would love to do a large scale study and yeah. it, it really is, I would have to say, is the first step of an exploratory mixed method study mm-hmm. where um, right now we're engaged in interviewing um, participants of our therapeutic program to find out what are the outcomes for them. So we'll have potential measures in the future and you can do more of a large scale kind of study. Very cool. Okay. Well, keep me updated. Send me your uh, dissertation when it's published. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank loader. you. Well, okay, so um, just for the sake of time, I want to move into um, the the question of does this, how does this, um, have you guys done it uh, paired with EMDR at all? I can I can address that. So um, because it's a six session treatment, uh, some of the participants are my clients who are in the therapeutic impairment self defense program, and most are not. 
So they're coming from other therapists or from the community or wherever they might be coming from. I would say a large percentage of them have done EMDR. And uh, it is a complementary treatment to that. I think they operate in somewhat similar ways, but uh, in terms of the brain functioning, but the embodiment is different in the therapeutic program. Mm. So I think it's a nice complement. I mean, I think of both of them as uh, a useful tool and a, a vital adjunct to trauma treatment if people are willing and want that. Um, so yes, we have paired it with EMDR. And in fact, I was just meeting with someone today who was talking about her EMDR work and wanted something that actually placed her in her body so that she could move her body as well. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, in terms of the EMDR community, this is um, sort of an underexplored, but also rapidly expanding area of interest uh, for those of us that have a somatic focus mm. of why not pair them, yeah. you know, why not bring them together, whether we're, um, you know, installing the experience of empowered self-defense as a resource or um, including BLS in the activity, whatever it is we're doing as a somatic therapy, um, because both are working with an or organic and natural process in the nervous system, it feels like such a natural and easy blend. Um, I, I have a lot of curiosity and interest in kind of taking EMDR out of the traditional two people sitting across from each mm -hmm. other situation <laughs> and uh, beginning to imagine how um, we can create moments of experience, like true embodied experience, which is what you guys are doing. And then very strategically highlight for the nervous system um, with methods like EMDR and uh, kind of point at this piece and say, please remember this bit, right? Like, please highlight this. And, you know, um, in neural language, we would say like, please add some myelination right here, right? Like <laughs> we want this, this new little baby synapse, this connection that we've just made to stay and strengthen and be easy to recall um, and uh, likely to be activated in the future so that these changes are spontaneous. We don't have to reach for this lesson that we learned, but it is present in a very organic way in their system. Um, and so I think this, this blend of EMDR and more somatic therapies is really an area that we can all kind of be creative together and imagine like, how can we begin to grow this? Um, and then eventually we'll get to the point where we're ready to research it, but intuitively and anecdotally, we know that it works and all of the, the science is there to support it. Um, so I'm kind of constantly curious about like, what are people doing? How are these things happening together? <laughs> well, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because you just gave me permission to do what I've been doing. Oh, good. <laughs> I don't know that I have the authority to do that. Well, I'm taking it, but, but I love to give people permission for all kinds of things. So well, I'll talk to you later. I could use permission yeah. for a few there more. You go. But, but in terms of the EMDR, while, while, when we're doing the therapeutic sessions, we also do a lot of body scans. We do a lot of breathing. And I have been more and more incorporating the butterfly tapping while we're doing that, especially when we're sort of installing or reminding people of that sense of power, that their, their body has value, that they have a right to be safe, 
Um, you know, those sorts of things, we we pause and we do that. And so from now on, I'm doing this. I, I'm all over the butterfly <laughs> tapping. We were um, so talking about that just recently. Yeah, so I'll, we'll do it that way. And, and the movements themselves are very are bilateral. bilateral. Exactly. You know, so yeah. you're moving your entire body. It's not isolated to the right or left side. It's no matter what you're doing, both sides of your body, which is, you know, part of the bilateral stimulation is occurring also. So it's sort of a bonus uh, for what we're doing. And, yeah. and I want to add, it's not just right and left. We are also rotating around mm. your access. We're doing up and down movements. Mm. So we're hitting all of the neural integrity and yep. all of the different planes of motion in, yes. in our strikes and in our movements. Yeah. And, and we're pausing to give them a chance to reflect and sort of integrate that before yeah. we move on. And we're giving them many times to practice in a very low stress and fun, fun. We use a lot of humor yeah, um, just to make it really, really safe. Cause mm -hmm. that is, that's so important and it's, yeah. it's made a difference. It's safe and they connect with one another, which is what, you know, healing happens together. Safety you know? and connection. That's the yeah, Exactly. And, you know, what's always interesting to me, you know, when we first started doing these therapeutic groups, I thought, well, maybe we ought to put sort of similar people who will age or what have mm -hmm. you. And that was impossible. So I let go of that. And it actually turned out to be a gift yeah. because the participants commented on how it helped them realize it wasn't something about them because they were all so different, different ages, right. different sizes, different everything. Um, and that was a, another, uh, you know, happy accident that turned out to be something that was really valuable. And so I also have permission not to try to make the groups any particular way. <laughs> so I <like> that. <laughs> but I think well, the brilliance here is that we had, we stumbled on it by accident, but then we recognized it. Like right. you were able to recognize that. So I think that's the brilliance. I'm going it. with, she called me brilliant. I did. <laughs> yeah, I would take that all day long. So um, for our listeners, and uh, I don't know how familiar you guys are with um, part of what we do here at Beyond Healing, uh, we are case conceptualizers. So besides EMDR, our, our main um, focal point is on teaching a method of case conceptualization that explains the why of why good therapy works and uh, why when things are not working, what are the barriers that we're facing? Mm -hmm. um, and, and we call that somatic integration and processing. And um, we you know, draw from attachment and neurodevelopment, um, AIP, which is the, the theory that EMDR is based on, and then somatic psychology as well. And kind of out of the, the combination of those three theories emerges this really robust way of conceptualizing the cases that we're working with. And so we call that SIP, somatic integration and processing. But what you guys are describing is such a beautiful example of the core concepts of what SIP teaches and what we believe in, in terms of the essential ingredients for a transformative experience for any human being. Thing number one is they must be safe. We have to anchor in safety first. Without safety, we cannot change because if we're not safe, then our defenses are up and our nervous system will not allow editing to occur. 
Um, that is just, you know, one of the fundamentals of, of trauma treatment. And so we always anchor in safety first and safety and connection, relational safety opens us up to a deeper kind of uh, internal editing and disconfirming experience that we cannot achieve alone. So right off the gate, out of the gate, you guys are hitting those two requirements for a transformative experience. And then um, you are working in a way that uh, stimulates and activates material in the right hemisphere first, which we believe is the, the essential way of working. Because if we go left hemisphere first, which is our logical, cognitive, storytelling, meaning-making side, we can get stuck over there for days, but that's not where change really occurs. So going into the right hemisphere and embodied experience first means that we have all this activation in the nervous system. And then at the very end, after we've had that experience and explored that embodied territory, we then integrate that into the left hemisphere with meaning, making, and story. And then we anchor back down into safety because it's that final anchor that means that I can integrate this into my new self-narrative and that's where change really occurs. So that is a super brief um, <laughs> rapid overview of why, why I feel um, like so excited by the work that you guys are doing that, you know, parts of it being intentional and then parts of it being observational learning on your part um, have figured out how does change occur with this modality um, for people that need it most. And so I, I think it's just um, not a happy accident. It's a very trauma informed way of working um, that you guys have created something that people can benefit from. So for people that know SIP, I just wanted to kind of highlight that. Yeah. So thank you for that bit of indulgence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I, I would love for you guys to talk more specifically about that mind-body integration, right? Speaking of that, you know, right hemisphere, left hemisphere, mind-body communication, how do you see that play out in this work? I, I think it's, it's all based on um, slowly moving through some, some movements that feel new and and then feel powerful mm -hmm. and then you can bring them back into a situation but first you're learning you're moving your body you're learning how to move your body you're feeling yourself in your body like that that's the the piece that we have to get to first because you can't learn a new um you can't learn how to feel powerful if you can't feel your body mm -hmm. to start with right yeah. so we we're starting there. We're, we're checking in, we're checking where we, where our bodies are feeling, where we're holding our tension. We're moving through um, a very structured and very um, tiered sort of movement practice. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're pausing to take breaks to, to reflect back. Um, we're using a lot of anchoring techniques. So feeling the ground and, and recognizing where the power is coming from, from the mm -hmm. base of our work. Yes. And, and in doing all of that, then you're bringing it back to, oh, and here's your voice as well that is allowing you to project this powerful being that you've become out into the world a little bit more. So that's how I sort of see it. Yeah, I would say all that is true. And we also intersperse psychoeducation. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, for, for some people, they know it, they come in, and, and I think they could probably teach me. Mm -hmm. And then there's others who it's brand new information, this whole idea of fight, flight and freeze, and that it's a it's a uh, a survival mechanism of your brain that's an autonomic um, system response. For some, they, they didn't know that yeah. they didn't 
they didn't know the statistics. We talk a little bit about the statistics. And I, I remember one woman in particular who said to me, I don't know anyone else who's been uh, assaulted, mm. to which I said, oh, I, I think you probably do. Um, and then she met the group. And so all of a sudden she wasn't alone in that. You know, she could see, all right, there's there are other people. So the psychoeducation, the psychoeducation about the nervous system, the psychoeducation about what a trauma activation is, what triggering is, um, all of that to take the mystery out of what happens. So when it happens, when there's a trauma activation, you understand the words I typically use is that it's a trauma echo, that that is something that you know was familiar or was a, a sensory information at that time that your body has now read as, oh my gosh, that's dangerous because it was dangerous then. And it sets off that response. And just knowing that, taking that mystery out of there's not something really wrong with me, but my body is just doing what my, my brain instead, my nervous system is telling it to do, sometimes is really uh, helpful for people to, to feel differently about what is happening. Mm -hmm. So that plus the body together and we reflect on all that. The other thing I was going to say is sometimes people know the information about the neuroscience Mm -hmm. behind it, but they haven't experienced it physically Mm -hmm. in their body yet. Yeah. So they might come in and have, you know, have the data, but they don't, they don't recognize how it impacts them until they start moving through it. Right. Um, So sometimes I feel like we get through our first sort of session when we've covered, you know, the basic material, we've done a lot of psychoeducation. And then we come to the second one where they're, where we're giving them a little bit more like a scenario style of work. And then they're like, oh, wait, I just learned this. I just learned this strike Mm -hmm. I could use here. And it's like a light bulb going Mm -hmm. off that their, their body has a, a power, even if they don't really know, like the proper technique to right. use at that moment, they do know something, yeah. right? You they know, so always do something. now they know that they can do something yeah. and that gives them just that little bit more, um, a little bit more power, a little bit more learning, a little bit more courage to take the next step. Yeah. yeah. It becomes a, an internalized resource for them, whether they ever end up using it physically or not, they evaluate their situation differently because they now have this skill and this resource available. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, and they're, they're recognizing that there's many more places for them to apply it, even if it's not the physical skill, it could be just the verbal, like you were saying about the boundaries. Yeah. Um, Yeah. They're, they're recognizing that it's so many, there's so many more opportunities for them to use that type of information about themselves. Yeah. One thing I, I just want to sort of point out here, one thing that we do repeatedly, almost to the point of um, maybe annoying, is that we point out that no matter what, it's not your fault. The, mm-hmm. the responsibility always falls on the shoulders whoever committed the action. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to find the perfect response to deter this particular attack or right. to respond to this particular attack. It, it depends. And uh, really what needs to happen is there need to be fewer predators, right? That's, we can't say that enough because what we don't want to do is have people think, well, if only I had known this strike, then it would have been different. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe, maybe not. Right. It's just something you're doing now. You know, it depends. And it, you know, it isn't your fault. You shouldn't have to even 
you shouldn't have to be doing this, right. but you do. It's your seatbelt, you know, in, in life, I suppose, that mm-hmm. you need to have that at this point in time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk a lot about options. We talk a lot about trust um, mm-hmm. and, and learning to trust yourself. Yeah. And control. And control. Mm-hmm. We talk a ton about challenge by choice and control. We ask for permission every time we do anything, you know, may I touch your shoulder or, you know, whatever it is that we're doing. And it, it becomes quite comical because it'll be like, may I, may I choke you? And people are like, oh, please do. <laughs> but, but we want to model affirmative consent. We yes. want to give control. We want them to know if you don't want to do it, that's okay. We'll adapt it or you can watch or whatever makes you feel comfortable. But that control piece is so pivotal because assault is a, is a profound lack of control. And so we want to counterbalance that with as all the control is in your hands. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think there too, there's this sort of underlying um, mechanism that's happening in the modeling of that affirmative consent um, process in the class where over and over they're being asked, is this okay? Which means that they then have to ask themselves, is this okay with me? Like, how do I feel about this? Because so so many of us, particularly women that, that are trauma survivors and uh, sexual violence survivors, we dissociate from that internal question. Asking myself if I'm okay with this is besides the point, right? Like I, I don't, Um, I don't benefit by being aware of how not okay with this I actually am because I'm now busy surviving. And so to to come back to that question of, wait a second, uh, there's a lot of situations where I have been handing over power, handing over choice and control, even if I'm not in a, a perpetrative situation. Um, do I know how to check in with myself about whether or not I'm okay with something? And to me, this goes back Um, into the roots of childhood for a lot of us where we're forced to eat foods that we don't want to eat, wear clothes we don't want to wear, sit in situations that we don't want to be in, hug people that we don't want to hug, all kinds of tiny violations where our right to choose what happens to our body has been demolished by the time we're three years old. Mm -hmm. And then we're expected to know how to do that in high pressure situations uh, with somebody that's kind of scary. And no, it just doesn't work. Um, and it, it's very fascinating. I think a lot of us are kind of opening up to this awareness um, for all the, the terrible reasons that we have to and are parenting children differently. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have had this experience of like being around babies that are taught body autonomy from the time they're tiny and how different it is. Uh, so I have a daughter. She's almost five now. And, you know, I have my stories. So from the time that she was little, like, is it OK if I do this? Like, I don't lift her and put her places without consent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she had a lot of medical stuff. So going to the doctor, we were very big on consent. And <laughs> like the amount of ability and willingness she has to just tell people no makes me a little uncomfortable, to be honest. It's like, you know, you know uh, we're, we're meeting somebody and uh, they come in for a hug and she'll tell them, this is my body. They're like, it's no big deal. But then on the other hand, she also loves to give hugs of her own free will. And we'll ask other people, can I hug you with this this huge open heartedness? And I'm like, oh my God, it works in the other direction too. You know, when we have this body autonomy, we actually um, are safe to be more affectionate in an honest way. And so it's been this, this great kind of unlearning and relearning for me, watching what 
true body autonomy from the time we're tiny can do in us and how different that has been for, you know, most women in my generation and older, that was like unheard of. It's like, what do you mean? I get to have an opinion about who touches me. Like, I don't, I don't know how to make sense of that. Um, so yeah, that's a bit of an well, aside. For all that I want to applaud that. <laughs> I think that's awesome. And I think all genders need that from know, all from the beginning yeah. and what a different world we would have. Yes. If that were the case. Yeah. So we actually teach a technique for the unwelcome tug. Uh, we don't have oh. we don't have a really cool name for it yet, but uh, we actually teach, and it's very gentle. It's not like you know someone's coming to hug you and you do something aggressive, or <laughs> just a way to sort of take their hands and yeah. and, and um, maintain and, your and maintain space. your space. Right. Oh, it's nice to see you and you're not hugging me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you guys can't see what uh, Christine's doing, but there's sort of this lovely uh, like hand action happening in the front of your body where you're crossing and it subliminally signals to anybody in your space like this is not to be occupied right now. <laughs> Will you actually take their hands that are outstretched? Oh, so if Christine were to try to hug them. me, it's like this. And I'm like, oh, it's so nice to see you. Okay. <laughs> received. (laughs) (laughs) There's no hug happening unless I consent. Yes. Oh, that's amazing. Okay. Well, for the sake of time, guys, um, let's kind of touch again on um, anything that you feel like you want to add to this beautiful conversation, but Hmm. anything in particular about the the nervous system-informed perspective on this, the trauma-informed perspective that might be interesting to both clinicians and clients. Hmm. We've covered a lot. We have. <laughs> I can't help but talk about the neurobiology of things because it's kind of where my head is always at. So I tend to sprinkle it in the whole way through. I find it well, it's so important and it's so yeah. interspersed in what we do. Mm-hmm. And it's been such a change. You know, we started doing this about 20 years ago. Um, when, when Nancy and I, I remember doing that, we started doing it 20 years ago. And we were just invited to do it. And we did a program that we were taught, just a self-defense program. And it was good. And Nancy and I are a bit of, um, uh, I don't know, what would you call us, Nancy? Um, dedicated to making sure that we do things um, in the best way we know how. And Perfectionist. So, okay, a little fastidious. I get it. <laughs> well, we wanted to make sure that we were like, you know, it's been an evolution. The neurobiology and, and what has happened in the trauma field yes. so has been fascinating. And it so parallels what I observed but couldn't understand. So, yeah. for example, when I started doing trauma work way back, Um, I just remember noticing that clients could tell me without emotion over and over again what their trauma was and nobody got better. Um, Or they could come in and they could tell me very little, but with emotion, but a sense of safety, and they seemed to get better. Mm -hmm. I was always puzzled by it and I didn't quite understand it, but I do now. Yeah. Um, and I and would just add that that's like the corollary with the classroom experience. Right. I talked about this program that um, was prior to really understanding trauma. And we misidentified students with ADHD, for example, and those were really trauma yeah. victims. And those ended up being a lot of the students that I had in this um, general ed program, but it was an alternative program for, you know, the kids that couldn't sit still, basically. And Um, It was through them, my students, that I learned about how moving their bodies, moving my bodies with them really helped them become more connected with school and with each other and more successful with their academics. And I didn't have, I didn't understand 
I didn't know anything about the trauma field at that point. And I think it was just really emerging because this was like the 2000s, <laughs> early, like yeah. year 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, but now um, the information has been so helpful for me as an educator and also to look back and, and think about things differently and also plan our work with the safety team. So. Yes. So when we know better, we do better. You know, when the research changes, we change. We yeah. we also, I think we're really dedicated to listening to the voices of our participants. Mm. What works? What doesn't work? This is this is for you. Help us make it better. And that's true in our community classes. It's true in our college classes. We do this all over. And it's true in our therapeutic program as well. We ask them what's help us make it better, you know, and that is so pivotal because that's who we are serving and we want their voice to to matter. That's Mm -hmm. our whole mission is that their voice matters. So we, we welcome that. The other thing I think that is important about the safety team is that we're, we're using our um, instructors as resources from such a wide variety of disciplines, you know, policing, educating, um, forensic toxicology, physical therapy. We have business people, we have childbirth childbirth educators. I mean, we just have such a wide variety, uh, marketing, everything that, from all of those perspectives, we're able to glean some really important strategies that can that help us move forward. And I think that's really important to highlight. You know, the other thing I would say is that um, many times people will volunteer and uh, first they'll take the class, then they'll want to volunteer. And as they volunteer, that is the next step of their healing, yes. you know? And so we have a leadership program where we mm-hmm. we welcome people to, we'll train you to help these small groups, or if you want to present. And so there's sort of a path that people can take to continue on their, on their healing. And I I would say that, you know, um, I guess the short sentence of this is the world's kind of a mess. And there's a lot of things that have happened in the last few years, and or maybe even yesterday or the day before. And it can be so discouraging. And yet, when we, and we volunteer for this for the most part. And yet when we go to these workshops or we do the therapeutic empowerment self-defense program, I know it feeds my soul. I know it gives me something back in terms of some sense of, all right, we, we can't stop the bad, but we're adding to the good. And we're seeing these transformational processes time and time again. And thank goodness, because there's so much to counterbalance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I love that. I think we've all been in contemplation about how do we exist and keep doing what we do and not mm-hmm. um, not give up in the face of so much. And um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, uh, she's a, a writer and a storyteller, uh, Clarissa Pinkola Estes. You ever heard of her? Mm-hmm. Um, she's a just a beautiful uh, author and storyteller, um, and she works with Jungian analytics and mythology. And she talks about in times like these, we have to learn to see in the dark. And uh, I, I think that what you're describing is a way of seeing in the dark, um, of being able to uh, feel together when there's just not a whole lot of light. And that's just uh, the truth and the reality of what we're facing together. Um, but that's not all there is. And I think doing this kind of work, especially with with people that have been sitting in the dark for a long time, right? 
um, it it does something to us to uh, be connected in that dark place mm-hmm. um, and feel like there is still something to be done here. Like, I don't know how to turn on the lights. I don't think anybody is coming up with real answers yet on how to turn on the lights and really change it in a dramatic way um, quickly. But there is still so much to be done. And I think this kind of work is a way of seeing in the dark together. Um, in a way that does not uh, say yes to the perpetration that's happening. Um, We're not okay with it. And yet there is still something that we can do as the survivors of it all. Um, So I love that. Yeah, that's nice. That is nice. Yeah. Um, All right, guys. So to finish up, I would love for you to share about how people can connect with you in some way, find your work, um, talk to you about what you're doing. Uh, Tell us about you've got some exciting news about some travel and training opportunities coming up. Uh, So give us kind of the update on how people can connect with you. So we do have a website, thesafetyteam.org, and on there are our email addresses, but I'll also give you my email address. It's Christine with a C-H at thesafetyteam.org, or Nancy at thesafetyteam.org, <laughs> or Tina at thesafetyteam.org. We'd love to hear from people, and we always respond. Um, so you can find us there. We're on Facebook as well. Um, I think we're on LinkedIn, but to be honest, we don't do a ton on there. <laughs> Does anybody do anything on LinkedIn anymore? I don't know. It, it felt like we should do it. And, I do. and so we're there. <laughs> um, and our exciting news is that uh, we are going to be traveling to Australia to train a large group of mental health providers in both of our programs, train and certify them so that they can use it in a variety of ways in their inpatient hospital, in a, in a number of outpatient settings. Um, it's We're really pretty excited about that. Um, so if any of your listeners are in Australia and want to say hello to us when we're there, you know, we'd be happy to do that. Yeah. What part of Australia will you be in? We'll be in Sydney. Sydney. Okay. We'll be in Sydney. Well, that's super yeah. exciting, you guys. It is so pretty exciting. do you yet have a certification program for clinicians uh, here in the States and how could they connect with you about that? That's exactly what we're working on. We do have a certification for instructors um, and we've done trainings for mental health providers. And so we're in the process of finalizing that. And um, that's one of our goals is to get that going. We'd love to see this sort of program um, spread um, because we can only do, we can only reach so many people and there's so, so many people in need. So, so yes, we're working on it. Okay, well, keep us updated. And as you guys um, have trainings and certifications and all kinds of things available, uh, let us know and we can post them to our social media and website so that people can find them and and stay up to date with what you guys are up to. Awesome. All right. So any final thoughts before we wrap up for today? I want to say thank you. Yeah, this was so fun for us to uh-huh. be able to do this. The only thing that I think is a little upsetting is that usually when we have a workshop, we have cookies. Oh, all right. All right. I'll have a cookie in your honor later, Christine. <laughs> that would be awesome. We just want to feed people every way we can, you know, body and soul. So we usually have cookies. Um, but other than that, it's been fabulous to be able to talk with you. Yes, thank and, you so much. 
Yeah. Yeah. Really? It's so welcome. It's uh, I think probably one of the funnest parts of what I get to do uh, to interview people. I don't know if people have noticed that I'm like always the one interviewing people <laughs> for the <laughs> podcast because I, I thoroughly enjoy it, especially when it comes to uh, the more somatically oriented things, because that's my particular area of interest. So thank you guys for offering your time this way. Um, and for all of the the volunteer time that you offer to the safety team, because I know I can imagine how many hours um, of your blood, sweat, tears, and love have gone into making it into what it is. So thank you for that. Um, all right. So to our listeners, thank you for hanging out with us during this hour of this conversation. We also want to let you guys know that um, this is the end of our season. Um, so we will be wrapping up this season and taking a summertime break. Uh, Jen and Bridger and I have a lot of travel and things to do. And so we'll be out of the loop for a bit, but we'll be back releasing new episodes um, the beginning of July and kicking off our next season on both Notice That and Beyond Trauma at the beginning of July. So happy summer, everybody. Get lots of vitamin D and movement and uh, joyful opportunity to you all. All right. Thanks so much. We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will aid you in your healing journey. If you are feeling inspired by something that you heard today and desire to seek out your own therapy, we would encourage you to do so and would be honored to support you in finding a therapist that is the right fit for you. You can contact us by emailing therapy at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Beyond Trauma Podcast. This podcast is a project of Beyond Healing Media, a media creation group committed to creativity, community, and embracing the beauty of being human. If you like this podcast, you might also like the other podcasts of Beyond Healing Media. Notice that is an EMDR podcast hosted by Andrea approved consultants and trainers who use EMDR in their practice. The Burnout Educator is an interview style podcast that invites stories from people across the spectrum of the educational system and seeks to see the human inside the role they play. It is our desire that you see parts of your story and those around you in the stories you hear. The Evidence-Based Therapist is an educational podcast where we read so you don't have to. On this podcast, we discuss seminal, recent, and relevant research on psychotherapeutics and the embodied relational sciences. How do we know what is evidence-based and how do we use it in our practice? You'll find out on the EBT podcast.